So let's pray and then we'll get into tonight's Bible study. We're very excited. Jesus, we again come to you in uh, total expectation that you are the king of this room and the king of the hearts of this room. And you have a, a passion to bring us truth and bring us freedom. And God, just turn us into spiritually thriving people. Uh, Lord, we want our cup. We hold out our cup to you and ask you would make it overflowing with your spirit, God. And who who would you turn away, Jesus, who came to you and you alone to fill their cup? And the answer to that is, of course, no one. And so we all just with one heart uh, as is your church here. We ask that you would fill up our cup to overflowing. Jesus, make my words be your words, Lord, and have nothing to do with me. And Lord Jesus, let your word, your, your, your words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write to us, just sink in and, and matter and be deeply effective in our hearts and lives. I pray we would have that soft soil in our hearts, Lord, that we would receive your word and it would be planted and it would grow up into fruit for your glory, Jesus. And uh, Jesus, make us loving, make us kind and bring us understanding in your name. Amen. Well, you never want to be the one who thought it was a costume party. (laughs) Ever. You do not want to be that guy. Tonight's Bible study is called, It Wasn't a Costume Party. It wasn't a costume party. How embarrassing. You walk in like you own the place, dressed as the Monopoly man, and everyone stares at you in disbelief, just like, is this how you normally dress? It was a party, but not a costume party. But now everyone's laughing. Well, tonight we are going to learn from Paul how to not be that guy when you go to heaven. How to not be that guy. Last week we looked at deceiving ourselves and how pride is the number one reason we deceive ourselves and how Satan was the number one example and the perfect example of how pride can deceive someone and cause downfall and ruin in their life. And I learned a lot last week as we were going through and studying Satan's life and how pride he was he was created so beautiful and he had such a job as the worship leader in heaven and then pride he thought he was something that he wasn't and that that heart to be exalted lifted him up and in the end it caused him to crash down and it was our example to not do the same thing. So today, instead of deceiving ourselves, we are going to take a careful and sober examination of our own works before God. That's what Paul is going to encourage us and teach us to do. So instead of being like Satan and just saying, I think I deserve something good. I think I deserve praise. I deserve something, a reward or something. I'm so good. Instead of having that mind, we're going to be taught tonight how to soberly and rightly think about our life and prepare now for what you're going to receive later. Prepare now for what you're going to receive later. Morris walks out into the street and manages to get a taxi as it's just going by, like walks out and whistles and gets the taxi right then. He gets into the taxi and the cabbie says, perfect timing. You're just like Dave. Who? Dave Aronson, the guy who did everything right, like coming along, like me coming along right when you needed a cab. It would have happened just like that to Dave. There are always a few clouds over everybody, says Morris. Not Dave. He's a terrific athlete. 
He could have gone into the pro tour in tennis. He could golf with the pros. He sang like an opera baritone and danced like a Broadway star. He's something, huh? He had a memory like a trap. He could remember everybody's birthday. He knew all about wine, which fork to eat with. He could fix anything, not like me. I change a fuse and I black out the whole neighborhood. No wonder you remember him. Well, I never actually met Dave. Well, then how do you know so much about him, said Morris? Because I married his widow. One way we can um, not be prepared for the party we're going to is when we judge our lives by comparing with other people. This guy had a, he always had to compare, well, he always had his wife comparing him to Dave the Magnificent. But comparing is not a good idea. Comparing is not what God has for us. That's not what we're supposed to have confidence in. In other words, when we think, well, at least I'm not as bad as this joker over here. No offense. It's not, we're not, that's not what God has for us. In other words, when we're thinking about heaven, we're thinking about what we're going to get and if we're getting rewards or anything like that, it, it doesn't matter what we do compared to what Billy Graham does. Or it doesn't matter what we do compared to what the homeless guy on the street does. Those aren't the comparisons. Those are not the comparisons. So let's now look at our text, Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, and let's see what Jesus has for us today. He says, But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. In verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. I'm going to share with you again in the New Living Translation because it helps me to wrap my mind around verses sometimes. Uh, the New Living Translation says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone. Here's another story for, for you. Years ago in Manchester, England, there lived a factory worker who had a very responsible job. The whistle that marked the beginning and end of the workday was operated by a clock, and it was his job to be sure the clock was accurate. So every day he went on his way to work, and he stopped in the window of a clock shop. In the window was a very expensive clock, and he set his watch by it every day. Then he set the factory whistle by the clock at the factory whistle clock by his watch. And the owner began to notice him stopping by the window every day on his way to work, and he asked him about it. And he explained that he set the factory clock by the fine clock in the window, and so that, factory, so that when the factory whistle uh, blew, it would be on time every day. The owner laughed. He said, all this time, I've been setting this clock to your factory whistle. When we measure our lives by the lives of others, we have a very poor standard on our hands. We will be comparing ourselves. Uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't compare. We shouldn't compare like that. That's not the standard that we're going to be judged by. See, reputations are even nice. Reputations are nice. It's great to have someone say that you're, you're walking right or you're doing a great job. 
Even a position as a pastor or serving in a church can be a mark of approval in your life. If someone came up here and said, I'm going to teach you tonight, you would automatically think in your mind, this guy has the mark of approval in his life that he's living right. Because our pastor has deemed it okay for him to share with us. So that's an automatic stamp of approval in someone's life. But is that what they're going to be judged by? What other people think of them, what their reputation is, or is it deeper? We have to be careful that we don't let that be the goal of our good works to just boost our reputation. We can we cannot evaluate ourselves simply on what others think or say about us, whether it's good or bad. I do have people come up to me all the time and say, you're doing a great job, but I cannot let that affect me. And I have some people say, you are terrible. (laughs) And I try not to let that affect me either. It can't, we can't let that be who we're serving. And our, so our reputation can be false. Comparing with ourselves with what other people can be false. You know, some people have their life and, and they're, they're very um, conservative. And so their life looks very conservative or good on the outside. But inside, you know, maybe, that their heart is struggling with just as much sin as you're struggling with. So we cannot let these outside appearances be what we're judging by. There's a much more deep and genuine measure of our lives. I'm going to read you a quote from Martin Luther. He says, Let a minister be faithful in his office. It is the apostolic injunction. Let him not seek his own glory or look for praise. Let him desire to do good work and to preach the gospel in all its purity. Whether an ungrateful world appreciates his efforts, it is to him no concern, because, after all, he is not in the ministry for his own glory, but for the glory of Christ. You guys ever heard of Johann Sebastian Bach? He born in 1685, lived through 1750. He was an awesome example of seeking the glory of Christ and not his own. He was born into a musical family, um, and by the age of 10, both his parents had died. Early in his friction-filled life, the young Johann determined that he would write music, music for the glory of God, which this he did. Most of Bach's works are explicitly biblical. Albert Schweitzer referred to him as the fifth evangelist, thus comparing him to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At age 17, Bach became the organist at the church, and soon after he was given the charge of the entire music ministry. During his ministry in Weimar, Germany, he wrote a new cantata every month. And a cantata is not a song. It's not a few songs. It's an entire evening of programming, an entire evening of of worship and all all that. He wrote a new one every month. And during one three-year period, he wrote, conducted, orchestrated, and performed with his choir and orchestra a new cantata every week. No one had any idea what a what a Mark Bach would leave in this world. His legacy lives on some three hundred years later. You can hear his music every day today in malls, on the radio, in CDs and movies, and I mean, music, it is everywhere, the effect that he left. And at the beginning of every authentic manuscript, one will find the letters JJ, 
And that stands for Yesu Yava, which means Jesus help me. And at the end of each original manuscript, you will find the letters SDG, which stand for Soli Deo Gloria, or to the glory of God. One must examine his own work. Even Bach had to, at the end of his life, examine his own work and see if it was right and good. And you and I are called to do the same thing. You and I are called to that. I think Bach probably got to the end of his life and was like, for the glory of God. And that, and that brought him, he was a picture of this verse where it says, let each one examine his own work and then you will have a rejoicing. So we're going to look a little bit about how we do this. How do we examine our own work before the Lord? Here's three verses that we're going to look at. First is 1 Corinthians 11.28. 1 Corinthians 11.28. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians a lot because there's a lot of parallels with uh, Galatians in the Corinthian letters. So in 1 Corinthians 11.28 it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what is it talking about there? It's talking about communion. Communion, which is a picture of our relationship. It's a reminder of our relationship with the Lord. So, dining with the Lord, spending that time. And as you guys know, back in that day, when, when you would eat with someone in Jesus' day, it was a, very, it was a sign of acceptance, that they accepted your life and they, they wanted an intimacy with you. And so Jesus says, I want you guys to dine with me as often as you can. Anytime you eat and drink and have communion, do it with me and remembering me and bringing me into your life. So he says here, when we do that, we're supposed to examine ourselves, examine our lives. Well, how do we do that? When you have that cracker, it speaks of how we were bought with a price. It speaks of his broken body. And when you crunch up that cracker and you break it off, the big piece of bread, if you're using bread, or the little crackers, if you're using the crackers, it doesn't matter. When you break it, it speaks of his broken body and that endless forgiveness. And so you examine yourself like that. Am I living like that? Am I living in endless forgiveness? Am I living with his broken body. What does that broken body mean? What, what does that affect me today? How does that matter to me? It's because it was broken for my sin so that I could be freely forgiven and now I can walk in total forgiveness no matter what I do. I can walk in that. So we examine ourselves and we take that bread, we eat it, and we remember forgiveness and we examine ourselves. Am I living in total forgiveness? And then... It doesn't just leave it there, the forgiveness, does it? It doesn't say, okay, you're forgiven, now go do whatever you want. There's a cup. And so in the second part of communion, it's you drink that cup, which is symbolizing of the new covenant. You remember his blood being poured out as the, the, the internal part of Jesus, what brought him life, being poured out. And it speaks of his <clears throat> excuse me, endless resources to live a good life. Endless resources that flow from him in his life. And then you ask yourself, am I living like it? Does my life look like that? That's why communion is such an awesome thing for us. Because every day it allows us to examine ourselves. 
You know, it, do, it does speak of identification, but a lot of it, it reminds us of a relationship and our dependence, our total dependence. So that's one way the, the word encourages us to examine ourselves. Another way is in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, Examine yourselves yet again as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Whoa, that can be a scary verse when you first look at it. Have I done something to disqualify myself? Am I in the faith? And he says here, we can test ourselves. We can examine ourselves. We're often very ready to examine and test others. But first and always first, we must examine and test ourselves. Um, That was a quote from Alan Redpath. So when he says here, unless indeed you are disqualified, Paul knew that there were some among these Corinthian Christians who were disqualified for eternal life and salvation. Their thinking was worldly because they were of the world, not of the Lord. This is a hard truth to confront, but it's better to know now than when it's too late. The word for disqualified is simply the negative for the word test. So it would be like tested bad. So if we don't examine ourselves and test ourselves now, we might find out ultimately that we didn't pass the test or were disqualified. So he says, if you're coming to church, he says, I want you to constantly think about Am I really in the faith? Do I really believe? And that's why I think the word gives, gives us so many warnings about people. Uh, do you know that the Bible talks more about hell than it does heaven? That Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven? Why would the Bible have so much in there about that? And, and why do we not want to necessarily encourage people to just think that their, their, their salvation is, is, um, is just done. We want them to understand that it's a relationship and it's a growing process. And it's to be in Christ. It's to be in Christ. Now, there is definitely an eternality and a, a, a sealing that happens when you're saved through the Holy Spirit. And no one's going to argue that. And that we are definitely chosen by the Lord. But we also want to encourage people to understand that God says to test yourself. Because you may not, you, you got you to know for yourself. You got to know for yourself. And then Psalm 26.2 says, Examine me, O Lord. Prove me. Try my mind and heart. So we ask the Lord to help us see the truth about our life and heart. That's a, a key thing for us, is to engage with God in this. You know, some people go on adventures to try to find their, their selves. You know, when they go and talk to the man on top of the mountain after they've climbed all the steps, you know, to try to find some wisdom or try to find some spiritual understanding. And the Lord says, come to me and talk to me about it. I can give you what you're looking for, which is a surety. You can know that you're in the faith. You can know that you're saved. 
That's wonderful. And I can I'm the source of that knowledge, not anything else in this world. So back in Galatians, chapter five, chapter six, verse five, it says, for each one shall bear his own load. Or another way to say that is for we are each responsible for our own conduct. We're each responsible. You're not saved because your parents were awesome believers. And you're definitely not saved because you're better than your mailman. You're saved in a relationship with Jesus. What's amazing about this is that there will be a day when we are, we actually are responsible for our actions. Not to pay the price for our sins, but to receive the war, rewards for our good deeds. See, here's a good way to look at it. A lot of people say, when, when are you going to be judged? Judgment. That's a question that's out there in the world. And, and a good way to, to think about this is me, as a believer, there's two judgments. There's a judgment for my sin, my bad deeds, and there's a judgment for my good deeds. Two judgments. Now, who can think in their mind, when did my judgment for sin take place? And you're thinking, when did it take place? What? I thought that was way off in the future when God judges you. No, actually, it says in the Bible that your judgment for sin and my judgment for sin took place on the cross. When God judged Jesus, judged us guilty in Jesus and punished Jesus for our sin. But there still remains a day in the future when we will be judged for our good works. In other words, we will be given rewards for our good works. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Now, what about the unbeliever? What happens with the unbeliever in judgment? When does their judgment for sin take place? At the great white throne judgment at the end of the Bible. So after this time, and then after the seven-year tribulation, and then after the thousand-year reign of Christ on the world, the Lord will let this whole universe be burned up and make a new heaven and a new earth, but he will judge people at that point. And if you show up to the great white throne judgment, I'm very sorry, because you will be judged for your works and your sin on the same day. And it will be a bad day for you. Because everyone who appears at the great white throne judgment is being judged on their own merits instead of Jesus as their intercessor, instead of Jesus as their substitute. It's their own merits. And our merits don't get us anything except a lot of bad. So the judgment for our the judgment is coming. But for us believers, what God did for you while you were God did through you while you were on the earth, while we are here now, what God does through you is going to be judged or rewarded. Romans chapter 14, 10 explains this to us and says, but why do you judge your brother or why do you show contempt for your brother? And I think this has more of that comparison in its in its meaning for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, Jesus is going to know. He's going to judge and he's going to decide if you did what was right. <clears throat> and Paul is warning us to getting our eyes off of comparing with each other and onto serving and loving as much as Jesus wants us to. It's not as much as Pastor Ed wants us to. It's not as much as your friends want you to or your mom or dad wants you to or your husband or your wife wants you to. That's not 
how much you're supposed to love or how much you're supposed to serve. It's how much Jesus wants you to. So we can't compare ourselves with one another. When, and it's also it's hard to compare yourself with one another when you're busy trying to love one another and serve one another. Unless you're saying, I love you more. Which if I heard that argument in here, I would be like, cool. <laughs> I love you more. No, I love you more. No, I'm going to take your trash out. I'm going to mow your lawn. <laughs> uh, we'll never be rewarded for comparing ourselves or competing with one another, but we will be re- rewarded for love and service. And we're told that we're not going to want to miss out on these rewards, that they're good stuff. Second Corinthians 5.10 is the other verse that explains this to us. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So how does this really work? Well, I think I found maybe the answer here. A preacher died and went to heaven, and he noticed that a New York cab driver, we have a lot of those tonight, had been given a higher place than he had. He said, I don't understand. And he complained to Peter. I guess Peter, he thought Peter was big up there. He said, I devoted my entire life to my congregation. Well, our policy is to reward results, said St. Peter. Now, what happened, Reverend, when you gave a sermon? The minister admitted that some in his congregation would occasionally fall asleep. It was only a couple times that he himself did. (laughs) Exactly, said St. Peter. And when the people rode in this man's taxi, not only did they stay awake, but they prayed. (laughs) So I guess results is what, (laughs) what, what works there. But let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This will be... The complete text of, of, uh, of this judgment reward seat for Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, he says, Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work and of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. What fire is it talking about right there? So you're going to appear before this judgment seat, and Jesus is going to be there. And we're, we're shown in the book of Revelation a description of Jesus that sometimes is odd when you think about it. It says he has, has, his legs are like brass. And he's got a sword and a big tattoo on his leg that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And one other th- and white hair and he's glowy and rainbows all around. And one other thing, it says his eyes were like fire. Maybe scary now. It's going to be perfect when we see it. But what does that mean? Well, because when he looks at something, he burns away all the sin. He burns away all the selfishness. You know, maybe you helped an old lady across the street. But maybe 90% of that was because she was in your way. And 10% of it 
was that you really just wanted to love her in Jesus' name. Jesus can tell. Jesus has the exact numbers. His eye is the best accountant out there. And it's in truth. And the Bible says in Revelation, when we see how he judges everything, that we won't be able to stop just yelling, righteous and true are your judgments, O God. Just, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to be like, that was so awesome. And you get 10% rewards for that. (laughs) And it's going to be a great day. And you're going to love that 10%. You're going to be like, oh, this this 10% is so lovely. I love it. I'm so grateful for it. It would have been nice to have like 20 or 30. But she was really, I was running late that day. And I can't. (laughs) So, notice that the amount of work isn't evaluated. Though it does have some relevance, I think. But Paul says the work will be tested to see of what sort it is, what kind it is. If one did a lot of uh, the wrong sort of work, it will be as if he did nothing. His work will be burned and vanished away. D.L. Moody wisely said that converts ought to be weighed as well as counted. How, how, how much, how weighty is this convert? I like that. When our work is tested before the Lord, what will be rewarded um, uh, is according to what remains. Does this worry you? Are you worried right now? Let me read to you from The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. We are, we are afraid that heaven is a bribe. That if we make it our goal we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. Wow. Okay. A world-class runner was invited to compete in a road race in Connecticut. On the morning of the race, she drove from New York City, following the directions, or so she thought, given her over the telephone. But she got lost, stopped at a gas station, and asked for help. And she knew that the race started in the parking lot of a shopping mall. So the, sta- so the station attendant also knew of such a race and uh, scheduled just up the road and directed her there. When she arrived, she was relieved to see the parking lot uh, of a modest number of racers preparing to compete. Not as many as she had anticipated, but an easier race than she had been led to expect. She hurried to the registration desk, announced herself, and was surprised at the race's officials' uh, excitement at having uh, such a famous athlete show up for their race. Um, But they had no record of her entry, but if she'd hurry and put on this number, she could make it just before the gun goes off. So she ran, and naturally she won easily some four minutes ahead the first male runner in second place. Only after the race, when there was no envelope containing her prize money, did she confirm that the event she'd run was not the race to which she had even been invited to. That race was being held several miles further up the road in another town, and she'd gone to the wrong starting line, run run the wrong course, and missed her chance to win a valuable prize. Are you even running the right race? 
Are you comparing yourself with others and against others in their performance? Or are you just following Jesus and giving your life to those around you, to those who the Lord has put in your life, your, your sons, your daughters, your spouse, your church family? Life is so short. Give it to Jesus. Don't live it for yourself. I was, was blessed and challenged this week when I, I spent a lot of time at the hospital with this family, with Tristan. And Tristan is a three-year-old boy who got um, uh, a flesh-eating bacteria and was struggling to survive. And um, I was spending a lot of time with the family, and we became very close. And... and um, on Monday, we were in there, and, and the, they found out that the surgeries didn't work. And Tristan died. And we were all in the room when he died. And, uh, and it was, you know, the screams and the, the terror of a mother who's lost her son. And, and, uh, and the tears of the father and the family. Um, it, it puts things in perspective, that life is so short. And I, I will never be the same after seeing that. And I will treasure every moment with my kids more than I do already. And I'll treasure my moments with you guys. And I want to live my life to serve and to love. Because this life is so short. And there will be, I want to have this joy in the day of testing. I want to have joy in heaven. And not that those tears of, oh, if I only would have. And I could have, but I didn't. And I should have, but I didn't. I don't want to have those regrets. You know, the Bible says, Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eye. What does that mean? That there's going to be tears. And I think maybe those tears are tears of, Regret. What I could have done. Let me read to you these, these last words. Pardon me, sir. I did not do it on purpose. That was said by Queen Marie Antoinette as she accidentally stepped on the foot of her executioner as she went to the guillotine. I can't sleep, said J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan. I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. That was Humphrey Bogart. I'm about to, or I'm going to, die. Either expression is correct, said by Dominique Buhauers, a famous French grammatician. Grammarian, I mean. I said that wrong. <laughs> I live said by a Roman emperor as he was being murdered by his own soldiers. Don't you dare ask God to help me, said by Joan Crawford to her housekeeper who began to pray aloud. I'm perplexed. Satan, get out, said by Aleister Crowley, a famous occultist. Now why did I do that? said by General William Erskine after he jumped from a window in Lisbon, Portugal in 1813. <laughs> hey, fellas, how about this for a headline in tomorrow's paper? French fries, 
said by James French, a convicted murderer who was sentenced to the electric chair. He shouted these words to members of the press who had witnessed his execution. Or check out these, these last words. Our God is the God from whom comes salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. That was Martin Luther. Live in Christ. Live in Christ. The flesh need not fear death. John Knox. Thou, Lord, bruisest me, but I am abundantly satisfied since it is from thy hand. From John Calvin. The best of all is God is with us. Farewell. Farewell. From John Wesley. And I shall be satisfied with thy likeness. Satisfied. Satisfied. From Charles Wesley. Now, how many of those sounded confident at what they were going to encounter? And how many of them sounded like they had no idea that it wasn't going to be a costume party? They're headed to the wrong place, and they had no idea. So you, examine yourself. Look at your life. Are you living for Christ Jesus or yourself? For each one of us, these scriptures say, is responsible for our own life. You are being warned right now. It's not going to be a costume party. You can't change who you are and what you've done on the last day or after on the day of judgment. You can't go in and change. Oh, I didn't know it was a costume party. Let me go change real quick. You can't do that. When you're, when you're there, you're there, and it doesn't matter how embarrassed you are, you can't change. We can't change. This is the time to change. This is the day to walk in the Spirit. This is the day to honor Jesus and to love each other. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we do love your word. And God, we want to be encouraged and we want to be living for you. And we want to have this confidence in our life and in no one else. God, we, we do not want to compare. We don't want to fall into that trap of thinking, well, I'm doing good compared to all the other Americans. I'm doing good compared to people I don't even know in China. I think I'm doing good. Lord, keep us from that deception. Keep us from that prideful attitude, Lord, and help us to just seek you and what you want us to do. Lord, maybe you want us to wash our neighbor's car and maybe you want us to take a bullet for someone. I don't know, because I'm not you, Jesus. But greater love has no one than this than him who would lay down his life for his friends. Lord, give us loving hearts. Give us a, uh, a clear understanding that we are gonna, we can have confidence in you, Lord. And in our relationship with you, we can have joy and peace and trust. And if there's anyone in here tonight who is just confused or, or doesn't have that confidence and no, needs to know that their sin has been forgiven and that they are in a relationship with Jesus, tonight is the night to turn your life to the Lord. Tonight is the night to say, I, I want to know. I want to have this joy. I want to 
know that when I die, it's not a scary thing. I want that. And if you want that, Jesus will give it to you. And you just pray and you say, Jesus, forgive me because you died on the cross for your sins. Accept me because you love me. And fill me with your spirit so that I can serve you and change me into a new person. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.